Welcome to an all new episode of Her Playbook brought to you by CCNY doing remarkable things. Learn more at ccny.cuny.edu. My name is Madeline Burke and joining me this week on Her Playbook is Basketball Hall of Famer Nancy Lieberman. Nancy, thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. Good to see you again. So good to see you as well. Um, so good to be here talking with you. I know one of the, the biggest things that I love is a good nickname, and you have a great one in Lady Magic. It is such a brilliant nickname, of course, being a, a dominant basketball player as you are. But I'm curious the origin. Who was the first person to call you Lady Magic? Well, let me just take you back. When I was playing basketball in New York in the streets in uh, in in Harlem up at Rucker Park, they called me Fire because of my, you know, flaming red hair and my fiery personality. So that stuck until I got to college. And I had been playing for so long at Old Dominion. And it was my senior year when Magic Johnson and Michigan State came to play in our men's Optimist Classic, the Christmas Classic. And the next day in the Virginian pilot, it said, if he's magic, she must be Lady Magic because she's been throwing boom, 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 these passes for the last three years. And then Lady Magic just stuck. And then Irvin and I, you know, had become friends as professionals. And we just laugh about it. Magic and Lady Magic, it seemed right. It stuck and it and, and it fits and it became a, a fitting moniker of your brilliant career. Um, as much as you have accomplished on the professional level, I'm curious the origin story too, especially you talked about uh, playing basketball at Rucker Park, growing up in New York, taking the train in from Queens. What was that experience like and how did that help you develop as a basketball player? We develop as a person because you know I needed basketball more than basketball and sports needed me because a lot of stuff that was going on you know in my family with my father leaving and us not having a lot of resources. So, you know, being able to hear that Rucker Park was where the, the best of the best played. And I would get into the park and these guys would say to me, little girl, are you lost? And I'd say, no, are you? And they, they saw my attitude and they said, you know, you're at Rucker Park. And I said, yeah, I know it's Rucker Park. And I said to this guy, is your name Rucker? And he goes, no. I said, good. It ain't your park. And I want to play and I need help. These guys, that kind of cut through everything. I wasn't afraid. They respected the fact that I wasn't afraid that I would take this trip into Rutger and I will forever be protected and loved in Harlem. And it was very impactful for me because really I was championed by the black community. I love going back into Harlem and I love going back into Rutger. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still such a formative place for so many young basketball players. So many young hoopers go out there. There's so much history on that basketball court. But I love how you talk about how just kind of the community brought you in and really had your back as a growing and developing basketball player, uh, even as a young woman in, in this era. How do you feel like so many steps across the way? You know, you mentioned earlier Magic Johnson was such a, a friend and an ally of yours as well. And, you know, there was so much support, it seemed like you had in your basketball career, who were some of the early influences or, or the biggest influences that maybe fostered your love for the game? First, I played football, then I played baseball, and then I morphed into basketball at nine, 10 years old. And at that, that time, the New York Knicks were really playing great basketball. So Willis Reed and Walt Frazier, you know, Knicks were my team. 
and I just loved what they stood for. Dr. J was a, a, a presence in New York, without a doubt. So those guys were my basketball heroes. I wore number 10 my entire career because of Walt Frazier. And it seems crazy that all these years later, being professional athletes or Hall of Famers, every time I'm with Walt, I feel like I'm 10 years old. And I just fangirl over him. And we'll just pick up the phone and I'll just call him once or twice a year and go, hey, Walt, how you doing? I just want to check in on you because I love this man. And at the end of the day, we're all fans of something or we fangirl about something. And I'm like that. And my ultimate hero of heroes that changed my life was Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And uh, I followed Ali, stalked Ali on TV, wherever I can find anything um, about you know, wanting to be the greatest and wanting to be the GOAT and what the process was. And then the day I met him, my senior year at Old Dominion, I mean, I couldn't breathe. The door opened and it was, huh, that Oprah moment, the glow. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I'm telling you, I couldn't. So I walked away and then, you know, he ushers me over and he goes, your mom says you're, you're pretty good. And I'm like, no, Muhammad. And I'm looking down and I go, I'm the greatest of all times. And he goes, there's two of us. I go, yeah. And I hit people too. Um, they, they irritate me. So I just beat them up. And he goes, Nancy, I'm going to ask you not to beat up people. I said, you do. He says, I get paid to hit people. So <laughs> he knew that I was damaged from my childhood and he put his wing over me and he never let me go to the day he died. And he knew things about me before I knew things about me. One of the quotes that I love that you've shared in the past about your interactions with Muhammad Ali is that he told you to respect everybody, but fear nobody. And I love that perspective. What does that mean to you? It means I have to try and I cannot be afraid to try. So because of Muhammad Ali, I'm not afraid to play in the Olympics in high school. I'm not afraid to play in the WNBA as a rookie at 39. I'm not afraid to play at 50. I'm not afraid to coach men. I'm not afraid to win. And I'm not afraid to change lives and inspire people. And I'm, you know, I was on the phone this morning uh, with Alan Iverson, my baby Alan, who I adore. And we've known each other forever. And he was telling me, you know, how he has such a, like a healthy respect for God and where he's changed as a human being. Mm -hmm. And I, I said something to him like, well, Ali taught me a long time ago that the greatest religion in the world is love and kindness. And, and Alan was like, wait, 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 let me write this down. I got to put this on Instagram. I said, yeah, don't quote me, quote Ali, the greatest religion in the world is, you know, you know, kindness and love. And the moments that I've had with him, uh, emceeing events for him, going to Yankee Stadium with uh, Yankee Stadium with him and Lonnie when he got an award, riding with him, just spending time holding his hand in his house and just yeah. every time telling him how much I love him and how much I appreciate what he did for me in my life and in my career. And cool. such an impactful, yeah, such an impactful person, impactful man in the world of sport, um, in your life, obviously. 
But is it ever odd for you to imagine that there are so many people out there that look at you, Nancy Lieberman, as their Muhammad Ali, as the person that championed them and what they could do and what is possible for their path in the world of sport? I mean, like you mentioned, 17 years old on the U.S. Olympic team, the youngest ever to, to win a medal for the U.S. Olympic team as you guys won silver in women's basketball. What was that experience like to just know that you were breaking ground or did did you conceptualize how big of a moment that was at the time? No, you play for fun. You play because your friends are there and it makes you happy. You don't go into the schoolyard to play football, baseball, basketball, hockey, boxing. You don't go there to think you're going to shake up the world or you're a, a pioneer or a trailblazer or break into glass ceiling. Nobody could have ever thought that. You're just doing something that makes you happy and feels, you know, like you're in a safe place. And when I was on that court, 94, you know, uh, you know, 50 by 94 or smaller, it just made me feel safe. I love the friendships and the camaraderie. And, you know, I think what happens is later in life, you start gaining some perspective that you have a responsibility to the game. You know, women's basketball had a pie. It was a very small pie in the 70s and 80s. And I had a very big piece of that pie. And Old Dominion, um, you know, winning two championships, going 125 and 15 in my four years, playing in front of sellout crowds every night. And we were women's basketball before Tennessee, before, you know, USC, before South Carolina, you know, before all those, you know, major universities like UConn. So we set the tone of this is, you know, this is the map of what you need to do to win. This is the the roadmap for what you have to do to sell the game and to be great, you know, gatekeepers. Yeah. Uh, and an ambassador for the game on so many levels. You know, we mentioned the Olympic debut, you know, you played professional basketball, but then along comes the WNBA, which of course now um, is thriving in its 26th season and is continuously growing. But you were a part of the inaugural season at age 39. You mentioned this uh, being a rookie at 39 years old and then returning to the court years later at age 50, making history. What is your relationship like with the W and how have you seen it grow? Well, I have to give the the late David Stern all the credit, and uh, I, I miss him um, as a friend and somebody who changed the course of women's history as as it relates to sports and basketball. I can remember back in nineteen about eighty five, I received a phone call from David Stern's office, and he's like, "I'd like for you to come to New York. I'd like to meet with you." And I'm thinking, "Wow, why would the commissioner want to meet with me?" So we go in his office, he closes the door and I go, why'd you close the door? He goes, they'll fire me if they hear these words come out of my mouth. He goes, Nancy, before I'm done being commissioner of the NBA, there will be a WNBA. And my only hope is that you'll still be around to play in it. So when you're, I don't know how old I was, you know, 25, 26 years old. And I'm scratching my head going, what are you talking about? Of course I'll be playing. You don't see the end. You right. At 25, you don't see the end of the diving board. You're not even in your prime yet. And this guy's telling you <laughs> that yeah. you might not be around to play when there's a WNBA. Yeah. And I'm like determined to play when there's a WNBA. I'm tired of getting my ass waxed by guys, knocked down, you know, beat up, bigger, stronger, faster. So I said, okay, 
um, that is amazing. And I, I'll see you in the WNBA whenever it starts. And he just smiled and just happy and happy yeah. to do something right for women. Uh, he was a visionist. He was somebody who wanted equality and wanted a platform for women. So, you know, I tip my hat to him and, and then Adam Silver for taking it to new levels. Yeah. And and the, the way that the game and the league has grown and evolved. And, you know, when you were in college at Old Dominion, you know, I saw past interviews with you at that time saying, hey, you know, the collegiate game is so good. It's only going to elevate the pros level. Now looking around at the pool of college athletes, the way that, you know, South Carolina, UConn, some of these schools are playing now and some of these women, this next generation of women coming into the W, how much does that kind of warm your heart? Just like looking at how much this game has grown for women. Great question, because so many people say, you know, are you jealous? Do you feel bad? You didn't have this. I'm like, dude, stop. No, I'm happy for every kiddo in college right now, whether it's Caitlin Clark or Boston or, or Dawn Staley, what she's doing for her team, Gino, you know, still grinding it out. My friend Tara Vanderveer, what she's doing. And, and a lot of the, the new teams like Indiana and people, you know, c- climbing up the, the top 25 pole. I'm thrilled for the game. I yeah. want the game to grow. And if you're mad that it didn't happen for you, shame on you. But just recognize you're a pioneer, just like me. We didn't get that type of money. I didn't get paid in college. I didn't get paid to play on the Olympic team. And it's okay. I just get to cheer and to promote and advocate for today's player. And I'm a fan. I'm a big fan. And it's just that there's so much forward progress being made in so many different levels. And like you said, we're all fans at the end of the day of just the greatness going on around us in the world of sport. Um, It's one thing that happens oftentimes in athlete for athletes, right? Is transitioning from being an athlete to a coach for you. You went through that transition. You, you coached on many levels. You also coached men and the men's game, especially at a time when, you know, there was not a lot of women making that transition into coaching. What was that like for you? Was it ever a challenge walking into a locker room as a woman? Because sometimes people will say, oh, that, how is that possible that a woman can coach a men's team? And then you say, well, I'm Nancy Lieberman. Watch me work. How does that work? <laughs> you don't come in and say this, is uh, I'm Nancy Lieberman. Like that's not my style, but I think um, I'll use Donnie Nelson who hired me, uh, you know, with the Texas legends of the NBA G League, the Mavs affiliate back in 2010. I had already coached in the WNBA as a head coach and GM with the uh, Detroit Shock. And when I saw Donnie uh, in 2010 at like seven in the morning, it was fate. I'm putting mail in a you know blue box in front of a Starbucks. He's walking out with Rolando Blackman. And I, in my mind is going, wow, he must have hired Roe as his head coach for this new team. And he goes, hey, sis, you know, uh, we, you know, sweet talk. And then it's like, hey, is your number still the same? And I go, yes. And he called me the next day. He goes, you know, I went home and I saw my wife and my daughter and we're going through a checklist. And he goes, you know, maybe the best man for the job is not a man at all. He says, you checked every box. You know, you've played, you've played in men's minor leagues in the USBL. Uh, for two years, you played for the Lakers, you played for Pat Riley, you played for the Jazz and uh, Frank Layton, you, you you won championships, you coached at these levels. He says, 
you're the perfect person for the job. And then Donnie said the most coolest thing one night, you know, somebody at the, the G League at that time was like, you can't hire her and you can't do this. And he goes, I'm having a press conference tomorrow and I'm hiring her as my head coach, introducing her at a press conference. And he said, this is what Martin Luther King marched and died for equality, inclusion, and giving somebody a chance. And I was blown away that he was so two feet in, not one toe in. I'm so curious too, because you have accomplished so much and so many wonderful things in your career. And oftentimes we talk about and celebrate so many successes, but I often find too, that in the trajectory of life and the growth of life, there's so many ups and downs. And for me personally, I found that I've learned so much from some of my failures, my shortcomings. Were there moments in your life or some adversities or moments that you're like, okay, that is what I learned the most from? I've learned from every misstep. I mean, I am so far from perfect. Uh, People have played through my mistakes. Uh, I can tell you this, that I've always shown up. Uh, I've never been afraid of the competition or the moment. Maybe I wasn't, when I was younger, as tactful as I should have been. I was hard on my teammates um, because I wanted to win so bad because selfishly I needed to win. And I didn't want them to play at a level of mediocrity. And I can go back and tell you, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I called pretty much every one of my teammates in college and said, hey, I'm sorry if I was so tough on you in practice. So I think probably being a little bit softer, kinder, gentler would have, you know, when I was younger, I had probably one tool in my toolbox and it was a hammer. Some people (laughs) got hit. But it worked, right? It got the job done. And, you know, at the end of the day, too, all we could be is ourselves and, and stick to that and authentically or as authentically as we can. You know, when you look back and you look at the arc of your career, of your life, obviously, in the moment, I would imagine you weren't aware of how much of an impact you were making on the world of sport, world of women's sport. But is there a piece of advice that you wish uh, someone had given you or something that you want to give to the next generation of young women, young girls who are saying, you know what, I might want to break through. I might want to be a next groundbreaker in my industry. Yeah, I do want women to be groundbreakers. I want them to be groundbreakers in attendance, in ratings, in, you know, one day the W having a full schedule here in the United States. So you can stay in your market. You could grow your team. Uh, I, I want young women to be owners of WNBA or NBA teams. I, I want them to, you know, there's such an incredible roadmap right now of athletes that are, you know, buying pickleball teams or buying, you know, soccer teams. I'm, I can guarantee you that my friend LeBron James did not think he was going to be an owner of maybe Boston Red Sox or, you know, a soccer team, you know, when he was 16, 17, 18. 18 years old. And here he is as a billionaire. I'm sure, you know, Michael Jordan didn't think, you know, he was going to be a multi-billionaire. But, you know, if you are surrounded by the right people and the networking and the fact that we're put in places now, there's this, you know, kind of cross-pollination of athletes and business people and tech companies and you're seeing right now, you know, uh, the Sue Birds of the world and uh, Sabrina and and more and more women. We shouldn't be one-offs. 
-hmm. you know, we should be, and you know, uh, don't let me forget, you know, Becky Hammond, like somebody, I saw a player when she got hired that she was making a million dollars. I can't believe she's making a million dollars. Do not say that. You, we need to applaud the fact that she's going to bring player salaries up. She's going to bring coaches salaries up. I'm really proud of Becky Hammond and she's changing what it looks like for us financially. Nancy Lieberman, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today on her playbook. It was such a treat and such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. Such a treat. Nancy Lieberman joining her playbook brought to you by CCNY doing remarkable things. Learn more at ccny.cuny.edu. I'm Madeline Burke. We'll see you next time.